Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5 says that, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. That's kind of my theme today and really the theme of this whole uh, series of messages. With the help of the Spirit and our faith, we eagerly wait for this promised thing called righteousness. Righteousness means rightness in the eyes of God. In other words, it's a, there are variations on the same word, which is holiness. We, we talk about holiness in church a lot, and it just comes in different packaging. It comes as the word sacred or sacrament or sanctified. Uh, or sanctity and so forth. So these are all words that are referring to a unique holiness that is something that is right according to God, the creator, the one and only Yahweh, the supreme being. And so that's what we mean when we talk about righteousness, sanctification, holiness. Now, if that's what it means then you can begin to understand why I'm sure some people think it's absurd to talk about this. Here's my proof. Are there any perfectionists in the room today? Uh Uh-huh. Those are just the ones that admit it. The fact is we all like to joke about being perfectionists and it really comes down to a lot of Oh, trivial things, really, where we're just sort of amusing to ourselves and others when we're a little bit obsessive-compulsive. You know, we're just trying to get everything just right. And deep down inside, that's not so bad, really, but there are times and circumstances that I'm sure some of you can relate to where perfectionism is a curse, where it's a response to an inner belief that your best is never good enough. It's a response to a feeling that if I don't get this right, I'm going to get criticized. If I don't get this perfect, I'm going to be hurt. And this is what a lot of people think and do that we would sort of jokingly refer to as perfectionism. Now, if that's what perfectionism is, then it's easy to understand why people would say, Pastor, I don't understand why you would preach one sermon about being perfect Christians, let alone an entire series. And that's the problem, isn't it? Because we're interpreting the idea of perfection through our own lens. We're looking at this concept of perfection as though we're looking to be something that we already know instinctively is impossible. See, all of you who admitted to being perfectionists, you also would have to admit that perfection is impossible. And that's why you're kind of amused and frustrated with yourself over your perfectionism. Because because you're thinking, I want everything to be perfect, but I know it'll never be perfect. And it is the perpetual forever useful phrase, the dog chasing its tail. It really is just this endless tornado of inner torment. Because you know you can't get it perfect, but you keep trying for perfect, 
even though you know you can't get it perfect. And so as long as you feel that way about perfection, the last thing you want is some preacher to get up here and tell you that we should be striving for Christian perfection. And what's more, we know Christians who really believe that they're nearly perfect Christians. John Wesley, in his series of sermons on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, describes the Pharisees as truly some of the most righteous people that ever lived. And he's not naive about that. Wesley was way better educated than me and a lot smarter than me. And I've always been kinder to the Pharisees than a lot of average Bible study groups. And it's because we hear the criticism, but we don't really understand where it's coming from. We're not seeing it from the Bible writer's perspective. But the Pharisees, and this is John Wesley's teaching, not mine, these were people who clearly had achieved a level of personal holiness that was way above your typical person. He even said in his sermon, and I think this is pretty funny because, you know, if you think that just because he used old English language from his Oxford education in, uh, you know, 200 and something years ago, it's still just as plain and vivid as it is today when I tell you that he would look at his audience and he would say, the Pharisees fasted three times a week. The Pharisees prayed and they and they studied scripture and they did good deeds and they attended to personal holiness with the depth of being that we could not even conceive of. And then he looks at his audience and he says with this wonderful British accent that I can't imitate. And I dare say you probably don't fast more than once a year. And so the point that he is trying to make is, is that the Pharisees whom Jesus both loved and criticized were people who had as come as close as anybody could to perfectly adhering to the law. And he said that it didn't generate righteousness in them. So what was his point? Their best isn't good enough? No, not really. What he was saying is, is that when they get to a certain point, where they are more slaves to their behaviors than they are slaves to Christ the King, to a, to a higher power, to the one who is, was, and always will be God. And, and so the point that Jesus makes about the Pharisees and that Wesley would have us take away on this concept of perfect holiness is that holiness is not about what you do in the flesh. It's about the nature of your soul or the condition of your spirit. So when you as a parent are a perfectionist and you love your child so much that you don't want to impart that perfectionist quality to them, you say, I wish it could have been better under your breath, but to their face you say, I love you so much just knowing you did your best pleases me more than you'll ever know. And so you have this tension, right? Because you want your loved ones, your children, to be the best they can be, and yet you don't know how to critique their bestness fairly. Now this is why talking about holiness and Christian perfection is so difficult for us. Here's what you need to know before you go any further on this topic 
of Christian perfection. Christ is not as interested in where you've been as he is in where you are going. Christ is not as interested in where you've been as where you are going. Look at all the people he encountered. Put down your nets and follow me, he said to the people who were fishing, but they're not anymore. Because now he's going to make them fishers of men. He says to the blind person, open your eyes and go. Because now you can see. He says to the person who is crippled, pick up your mat and walk. Because you're not crippled anymore. He says to the dead, come out of the grave Unwrap him and let him go forward from here. He says to the woman at the well, I know all about your past sins, but now go and sin no more, having had the water of life. Jesus doesn't care about where you've been as much as he cares about where you're going, and that is on to perfection. As difficult as that word is for us to grasp, but let's take it a little further. John chapter 17, verses 13 to 19, and I just can't get it to stop going thump, thump on my microphone. (laughs) But now Jesus says to the Father in prayer, I am coming to you in these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. Jesus prays to the Father in heaven, sanctify them, make them holy. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus is saying what he's about to do on the cross is a form of consecration. He's taking upon himself this burden that separates us from God. And then he's saying, because I've done this, Father, now you can make them holy. So his whole objective, his own words, his prayer to the Father before he goes to the cross is, Lord, I'm taking away the problem of sin. Now sanctify them. Make them holy. Now, if you love Jesus, then you want to be holy, I would think, because that's what he's wanting for you. That's his goal for you. He set that before you as the goal. The Apostle Paul says, In the letter to the Galatians, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian because we are sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all who were baptized into Christ have clothed themselves with Christ. So what he's saying is is we're no longer following a set of rules and making sure that we get the approval. In other words, we're not under a guardian who's watching over us to make sure we get this right. So perfectionists, who's watching over you trying to make sure that you do everything right? You know the answer to that question because it's you, right? It's, it's never more or less than you. 
It's a perception you have about somebody else that you may have received over time through a lot of traumatic impressions you've gotten growing up. But at the end of the day, the only one who's still standing over you like a guardian is you. And Paul says, you don't work for that guardian anymore. You are sons and daughters of God because of Jesus Christ. Now we're getting to an important point here about being perfect in the eyes of God and being entirely righteous or entirely sanctified. Paul says to Titus, for grace from God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. In this present age, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has himself, has gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Two things there. We are to be training for perfection. You see that? It's a training process. You're not expected to get it overnight. And I dare say there's nothing that you do well that didn't take you a long time to get good at. This morning somebody told me in the, in the most generous way, this person said, you know, lately your, your preaching is just way better than ever. And it, it was always good, but it's even better than ever. And I just kind of smiled and said, well, thank you. I hope so. After 25 years, I hope I'm better at this than I was. Because I would like to think that practice has improved my game. But I will tell you this, and Laura's my witness because she's been with me every step of the way. I haven't changed my message. It's still the same. I, I haven't changed what I say. She's probably heard me preach on most of the scriptures more than anybody else ever. And she'll tell you that I may have gotten better at the process of delivering the message, but the message hasn't changed. And so that is the way it is with us in our sanctification. We're not really changing as a core being as much as we're getting better at it. And so sanctification really is a steady process of training and self-improvement and increased confidence and poise. And, and it's a matter of faith according to Scripture. And so when you read the Scriptures and it tells you that it's your faith combined with this work of the Spirit that sanctifies you, then what it really means is, is that you won't know until you've had some experience behind you how much you are actually changing for the better. A lot of psychologists and counselors would tell you that's why journaling is a really good idea. In a few minutes, I'm going to give you some practical things to do, and they'll include journaling or writing down signs that you may be changing for the better and you just didn't know it. It's healthy to stop and evaluate your life from time to time in order to grow in many aspects of life. And of course, it's true in your spiritual journey. So this passage from Paul to Titus tells us that we will develop better discipline that prevents us from ungodly passions. We will develop a better sense of self-control and more godliness. It will come with training and practice. 
But here's the other thing he alludes to, and it's like, like to me, it's like two totally different topics, but it's not. And so I'm going to have to ask you to use your imagination for a minute. And men, I especially am going to test your faculties because this is a biblical tradition and biblical image that is as ancient as the New Testament. And it's hard for us men to wrap our minds around it, but women get it pretty quickly. We are the bride of Christ. We were created by God in Eden for the sake of his son. And to that end, we have been saved so that on the great day of the Lord's coming, we might finally be united entirely and completely with Christ the son as his bride, the church. Now, I have done more wedding ceremonies in my career than I can remember now, but I can tell you about the ones that stand out in my memory. The ones that stand out in my memory have certain aspects that are really remarkable. For one thing, in this day and age, there's usually a certain reservedness about the bride and the groom. They have saved themselves for this remarkable occasion. They either made a conscious decision to stop whatever they're doing or they've just waited. But either way, there's a sanctity about the wedding that they want to preserve. And that makes all the difference when I'm standing up there next to the groom and his bride comes around the corner and he's seeing her for the first time as his bride. And I'll tell you, that guy, you know, the same guy who last night at the rehearsal was acting kind of dumb and not sure what he was supposed to do and waiting for his future wife to tell him everything, that same guy suddenly becomes very religious. And he stands there and he looks down the aisle at that woman. And I can feel his temperature rising. I can feel it. I can feel the joy and the excitement. Because for that moment, he sees her in a way that he had never seen her before and never will again. And the beauty is just breathtaking. Now here's what I need for us men to use our imaginations. I want you to imagine that you are betrothed to someone that you've wanted to spend your life with. You've wanted to share life with. It's not just a matter of being together. It's about being in life together. And you've wanted this forever and you know that that day is coming. And so in anticipation of that wedding you are preparing. You're trying to make sure because you're wondering, well, I wonder what he'll think when he sees me. I wonder what kind of house I'll be able to make for him to live in. I wonder what kind of cook he'll find me to be. I know this sounds sexist, but I don't care right now because we're talking about biblical language for a minute. We're talking about the language of the Bible that says one person is so eager to serve the other that they worry about it. One person is so eager to be the most pleasant sight that other person has ever laid eyes on in that special moment that they're betting that if they do everything they can, they're going to win that person completely in that moment. So whatever you want to call it, I'm calling it a bride and a groom, and I'm talking about our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And this is the one we're getting ready to see. And that's what Paul's talking about to Titus. When he says... We're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself to redeem us from all the lawlessness. We're waiting for that. 
And I'm going to tell you something else I know about these weddings that I've done more than I can count. One thing most all of them have in common is, is that uh, the bridegroom probably didn't spend a great deal of effort getting ready, but the bride sure did. She spent a long time thinking about how she was going to look on this day. And she put a great deal of effort into it. So when you think about Christian perfection, when you think about your spiritual journey as it is right now, do you feel as though you are making yourself ready for your coming bridegroom, Christ Jesus? Do you feel that if he came to you today, he would be stunned by your glorious, radiant beauty? Well, okay, now we're going back to that, but I'm not perfect, and you just told me that's impossible, right? Being perfect as a Christian isn't the goal. Being a perfect Christian is not the goal. Being like Christ is the goal. Being a perfect Christian isn't the goal. Being like Christ is the goal. And here's the thing. This is, this is one that you can't look at through a human lens and make any sense of. So use your spirit guided thoughts and imagination for a minute and realize that when Jesus looks at the church on that great day of that wedding, what he sees is a reflection of himself. He sees the reflection of his radiant beauty. God is so passionately devoted to the sun that all he wants for the sun is a mirror image that is a perfect counterpart to the sun. In other words, the bride that we are to be after the consummation at the great wedding of the lamb, that is all meant to convey a sort of synchronicity, a sort of synergy of spirit and being that creates one radiant explosion of the beauty of Christ perfected in people. And all we're doing right now is working towards that end. Paul says in Romans, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, from the beginning, and this is, this is a phrase that gets misused among Christians, and there are certain doctrines that I don't share related to this passage, but what it does say to me plainly is, is that Paul understands that from the beginning, when God first created humanity, the Adam, God's intention, his foreknowledge, his planning, was that they would be the radiant beauty of Christ reflected back to him. This is what you were meant to be from the beginning of creation. And therefore, having been saved against sin, you are able to work it out as you move through your life and times and even into eternity so that you become a reflection of the bridegroom, Christ Jesus. Being perfect is not the goal. Being like Christ is the goal. And here's the thing that's so remarkable about this is that it's his perfect love that makes it impossible for you to fail. In other words, in order for you to become entirely sanctified and perfected in love for Christ and others, 
All you have to do is meet his criteria and he is perfect love. Therefore, as he interprets it, you're already perfectly loved. And it's just a matter of waiting for you to come along. Parents, you understand this. Grandparents, you understand this. You get gifts from your little child that are very imperfect looking, but you absolutely adore them. I have a large collection of junk that is precious to me in my office, at home, in boxes, things I refuse to part with because they are imperfect gifts from people who loved me. And I just enjoyed the love so much that I didn't care as much about what it looked like as it felt. And so what you need to understand is that this pursuit of perfect love, this pursuit of entire sanctification is not about what you do and how the people around you perceive it. It's about how the Lord feels when you talk to him, when you live for his sake. In other words, Every time you start a day determined to use that day's life energy to please him. To love him as completely as you know how and then love others as an expression of that spilling over. If you do that, you made his day and he doesn't care if it looks like a two-year-old's coloring on your refrigerator. It's the love that makes all the difference. So here's what I want you to know, and Adrian's working on a formula for me on this. Gradually reducing daily doses of self while trusting in the Spirit's transformative power over time generates personal holiness. Okay? There's this thing called the momentum theorem, and I'm sort of using my own version of it. Gradually reducing daily doses of self while trusting in the Spirit's transformative power over time generates personal holiness. You see what's going on there? You're doing the best you can to reduce your selfishness and your self-centered thinking and changing it over to Christ-centered thinking and others-centered thinking. And then you're relying on the Holy Spirit in faith to provide you the extra stuff that you need to get there, and believe it or not, over time, you will get there. Now, you've got to do some practical things if you want to see that at work in your life. You have to have some sort of measure that you can evaluate against. And so I'm literally going to suggest that you start keeping a journal and it, couldn't, it could be as simple as a basic piece of paper where you have a column, you know, a line down the middle and a column on either side. And on the left it says selfish and on the right it says others or God. So me, God. At the end of the day, write a hash mark for every time you thought more about yourself than others. And write a mark for more, how many times you thought about God first. I mean, it could be that simple just to evaluate your day and then look at your weeks and your months the same way. And don't be surprised if after 
several months of doing this, you begin to realize that you have become more God-focused and others-oriented with each day. And when you ask yourself, why am I doing this? It's because it pleases the Lord and I want him to see his radiant bride waiting when the day comes. See, that's a whole different frame of mind. I'm telling you, the world delights in cultivating your selfishness. And you will notice a difference when you really consciously choose selflessness. When you stop talking to God about what you want, what you need, and what he should fix, and you start talking to him about what he wants, what he needs, and what you'd like, what he'd like you to do. When you change your prayer in simple ways like that, after a while, it begins to really be, reflect Christ in you. If you want to attain this personal holiness, the, this elusive thing we're talking about, it starts with basic discipleship, which is discipline. And it's disciplines like just counting the cost daily. And I'll tell you this, you could have a better time of it and be more successful if you would get along, get, come alongside like-minded people in what Wesley would call bands, or we might call them small groups. But if you had a small group, three or four people, along with you who were trying to do the same thing and you kept each other accountable by being each other's record, you might be surprised and how rapidly you change for the better. Let's pray to that end. Almighty God, I thank you for your word. I pray that it truly does change us forever. Let the sanctification begin. For your glory, we pray. Amen. Amen.